The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I really appreciate coming here and sitting with all of you tonight. I, th- I think it's so supportive uh, to be in a group of people when we do meditation practice. Uh, so much so that sometimes when I sit at home, I call up the sense of people sitting in different places around the world. Um, so first I'd like to get to know just a little bit about who's practicing here this evening. And um, I'm curious, how many people have been at this under a year? You know, they're relatively new to the practice. No one. So this is an experienced crowd. So how many people have been practicing in the range of one to five years? Okay. And how many people over five years? How many people a long time, like over 10 or more years? Yeah. Great. Thank you for being here. So, you know, the support that we get, even in being in silence together, um, is part of the tradition of this practice. Um, It's a practice that was passed down orally between people for so many uh, centuries. And we're lucky enough to have had it handed down for the last 2,500 years or so. Um, So people um, being in silence with one another and also sharing insights and traditions that came down from the Buddha. So sitting together, I think we cultivate a lot of the qualities that uh, eventually help us get free of suffering. And um, tonight I'd like to share some reflections on befriending our experience in the company of other people um, and how that contributes to our growth and our movement towards freedom from suffering. So I love this quote from the Upada Sutta as translated by Tanisaro Bhikkhu. I have heard that on one occasion, the Blessed One was living among the Sakyans. Now there is a Sakyan town named Sakara. There, Venerable Ananda went to the Blessed One and on arrival, having bowed down to the Blessed One, sat to one side. As he was sitting there, Venerable Ananda said to the Blessed One, this is half of the holy life, Lord, Admirable friendship, admirable companionship, admirable camaraderie. And the Buddha replied, Don't say that, Ananda. Don't say that. Admirable friendship, admirable companionship, admirable camaraderie is actually the whole of the holy life. So that statement caught my attention. Admirable friendship, admirable companionship, and admirable camaraderie is not just part of living our practice, it's the whole of our practice. So how might that be true? You know, we sit here in silence. Um, Maybe we're not thinking so much about friendship right now. But, um, so the Buddha goes on to elaborate the way he sees this in the sutta. But before we go into that, I think it's useful to just contemplate this idea of friendship companionship and camaraderie and how it might um, be part of or the whole of our spiritual life, what it might mean. So if first just considering the definition of these three words, friendship, 
companionship and camaraderie. As I looked in the dictionary, of course, there was a lot of crossover. Sometimes they're offered as synonyms for one another. But just thinking about what they connote, um, you know, friendship, there's often a state of mutual trust. There's often things that we'll do, to our, do for our friends, extend to our friends. Um, the dictionary definition commented that it had to do with both emotions and conduct toward one another. Companionship carries this feeling of accompanying or being with. So, just being alongside. In camaraderie, um, the comment was made, you know, about a friendliness towards people that you spend a lot of time with or a kind of teamwork. Um, So that's interesting that the three of those nuances are given in this sutta. And, you know, one one way that it might make sense that these three things would be the whole of the spiritual life is that maybe you've noticed that your suffering or your freedom from it really shows up in living your daily life and it shows up most often in your interaction with other people. So, you know, you interact with fr- friends, family members, co-workers, neighbors, people in service jobs, teachers, all these people. And we can begin to see in those relationships when we're caught up in suffering or when we're free from suffering. So, and maybe these concepts of <coughs> friendship and companionship and camaraderie can be seen in those interactions or the absence of them. So, you know, when I go into a store during this season, I see some clerks who uh, have kind of a deadened look on their face and, you know, acting almost like they've been treated like machines all day. And, you know, maybe they haven't been treated in a very, uh, in a sense of camaraderie. And that drops away if somebody actually looks them in the eye and greets them and, you know, acknowledges we're both sharing uh, this experience of this day or this holiday season or, you know. So you can feel the mutual need for friendliness in a moment like that. Um, There are thousands of people whose lives intersect ours in maybe less visible ways. So we share roadways, walkways, water, air, shelter, food, so many different resources. And the way we go about those relationships is also a snapshot of our suffering or our freedom from suffering. So snapshot of friendliness, companionship, camaraderie, being present or absent. So if you think about um, how we use the roadways, there's really a different feeling to being on a freeway during rush hour or rush hours in the Bay Area. It seems almost constant at times. If the attitude with which you're driving is one of competitiveness, like I'm going to get there first, versus let's say you're feeling companionable towards other people on the freeway, if you're feeling a sense of companionability with them, then, you know, you're going to make space for even the person who is doing something that's not very safe or racing you for an exit. Um, it's It's a very different feeling.
if you're taking care of your house, there's going to be a different feeling about um, sharing the space on uh, this earth if when you find uh, ants trooping across your kitchen, you have more of a feeling of friendliness towards them and recognizing that, you know, they're busy working the soil that produces the plants that produce the oxygen we breathe and produce the food we eat. And so um, you take a different attitude than when you're ready to use some kind of pesticide. Um, Or if you have a clogged drain and you think about the effect on the waterways of pouring Drano down the drain, you're going to take a different attitude towards how you're going to take care of that if you see yourself in kind of comradeship with other people sharing the waterways. So there's so many different ways that we affect each other. And this idea of admirable friendliness, companionship, and comradeship really can affect how we go about our practice. So um, in this sutta, the Buddha goes on to say, when a monk has admirable people as friends, companions, and comrades, he can be expected to develop and pursue the Noble Eightfold Path. So in other words, the instructions that he gave for how, how to go about um, bringing suffering to an end and how to go about living a life that leads to freedom. So this idea of admirable people as friends, companions, comrades, leading the way towards this path that takes you to the end of suffering, I'm curious how many people here entered this practice because of someone that you met or someone who said something or something you read from someone or something you heard. I definitely did. So, you know, it's very interesting that the influence of other people sometimes leads us right to this practice. One of the key reasons I began to practice was over a couple of uh, year period, I had three different colleagues who there was something different about them. They, uh, I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but they struck me as being um, more compassionate, uh, really having a sense of really being present with me as we worked together. And... Um, I just found them markedly different from other people I knew. And as I listened to them over time, I learned that each one of the three had a meditation practice. And, you know, I I was struck by that. And then uh, over time I heard mention of Insight Meditation Center and Spirit Rock Retreat Center. And um, just noticed, you know, just garnered, oh, you know, these people have something in common. They weren't walking around, by the way, announcing that they had a meditation practice. They weren't saying meditation was something you should do. They just embodied some admirable qualities that attracted my attention and interest. Um, You know, basically admirable qualities of being human (laughs) and sharing. So, um, being around these folks led me to read a book by Jack Cornfield to come here to IMC to start practicing in 2004 and to try a retreat at Spirit Rock. And then that those actions led to more uh, admirable 
companionship. Not only the fellow Dharma students I was meeting, but also the senior Dharma teachers. Um, You know, they are kind of exemplifying the results of this practice and bringing it alive, providing inspiration and teachings for how to move forward in the direction of liberation. And it's again, it's not because they're talking about some way that we're supposed to be, but because uh, they teach practices and they embody practices that inspire, that have inspired me and inspire us to um, try it out for ourselves and see what happens. So that's one way in which it makes sense to me that admirable friendship, companionship, and comradeship make a difference and spur us on towards freedom from suffering. There's another way it makes sense to me that these three things would uh, be the whole of the spiritual life. And that is that they're not only qualities we find in Dharma friends, fellow students of the Dharma, and teachers, but also they're qualities that we can extend to ourselves internally as we do this practice. So um, as we practice mindfulness and meditation, maybe you've experienced this, that this practice calls on you to deeply befriend your experience Um, with, you know, supporting yourself, trusting what's coming up, being with it in a very patient, kind way. So we spend a lot of time in the company of our own inner experiences, not only in mindfulness, but in daily life. Um, We're accompanying ourselves here when we do these practices with mindfulness of the breathing, of the body, of feeling, of mental states. And when we're with these things, it does have this quality of accompanying ourselves. You know, there's a one part of ourselves that's accompanying experiences that are arising in us. If we befriend and accompany those experiences, what might that look like? How might that actually prepare us to be admirable companions to others and to ourselves? So I'm thinking there are a lot of kindnesses we extend to our friends. Um, We listen very carefully when they're speaking, for one thing, and we learn things from them. So here's how Rachel Naomi Remen describes this. The most basic and powerful way to connect to another person is to listen. Just listen. Perhaps the most important thing we ever give each other is our attention. A loving silence has far more power to heal and to connect than the most well-intended words. So similarly, mindfulness has us listening carefully or being just being with carefully what's happening inside ourselves to what experience is telling us internally and externally. So you've just offered yourself a period of loving companionship just in being silent during the meditation. You're... Um, just listening right now and reflecting on what, you know, what's coming to your ears. And so what is this being with, being a companion to your internal experience telling you tonight? So right now, being with my breathing this evening, I've noticed that 
I've noticed it's sort of keeping pace with how much energy I'm expending or how much relaxation's going on. So I, I felt it get a little shorter as I summoned the energy to start talking or, you know, there was more breath being taken in. Um, I could feel my body unwinding from the day as we did the meditation, just sort of relaxing. And I can feel, you know, energy rising in it right now as I'm talking to you. Um, It's also, my body's also very relaxed. So it's kind of telling me how this investment in practice over the years has helped me be able to relax more easily, more readily. Um, The feeling that I'm getting is one of a pleasant feeling of being with you this evening, being in the company of fellow practitioners. And the mental state is basically one of a, you know, happiness, energy, contentment being here. So, you know, this mindfulness practice calls on us to listen as we as we practice year after year ever more deeply, ever more kindly and compassionately. So there are times when we may be observing experiences that are very unpleasant or that we don't understand. Sometimes we may be confused, especially as we really peel back the layers and get into what is still keeping us stuck. Sometimes we hit some things that we really, we know we're suffering, but we don't really know enough about it yet to be free of it. Um, The Greek philosopher and mathematician Pythagoras, who lived, you know, uh, between five and six hundred years BCE, said this, friends are as a companions on a journey who ought to aid each other to persevere in the road to a happier life. So this practice takes a lot of perseverance. And Dharma friends and Dharma friendship and companionship internally as well as externally can help re-inspire us and keep us, encouraging, encourage us to keep going. Um, Even when we feel confused or stuck or like we know they're suffering but we can't quite come to the end of it. So every time I've told one of my Dharma friends Uh, one of those experiences, I've noticed that even when I shared the toughest ones that, you know, I didn't really, they didn't really feel good to admit to, they've responded with kindness and compassion and often said something that just started to loosen up or give me some way through whatever difficulty I was having. Perhaps what they've done is described by George Bernard Shaw's statement, the only service a friend can really render is to keep up your courage by holding up to you a mirror in which you can see a noble image of yourself. So our meditation practice is sometimes referred to as a mirror. Andrea Fella talks about that mirror reflecting exactly what's there. And... Um, that mirror, though, also has this noble image of ourselves. This sitting practice, maybe you can feel sometimes that it's a noble endeavor. You know, we're not, we're not just having the mirror of what we're doing. We're also getting a little bit, perhaps, of the sense of persisting, having the courage to keep sitting here and noticing um, what's happening, even when it's tough. 
So in a deep friendship, when we don't completely understand a friend, our sense of friendship helps us stick it out, waiting to come to a better understanding of what's going on. Maybe you've had that experience with a friend. So at times, our experience of companionship or friendship or comradeship with someone calls on us to accept accept something that is completely foreign to us. And extending that further out, I can't think of something that's needed more in the world today than being able to extend that feeling of companionship towards things that are completely foreign to us. So for example, people in this room, people in this culture, have entirely different experiences of what this living here has been like. You know, and sometimes people will tell us things about their experience living here that are very different than what you may have experienced, what I may have experienced. And the practice calls on us to extend acceptance to that and to ourselves in our, like, wow, that's so not what I've been through. So I like what Alice Walker said about this. No person is your friend who demands your silence or denies your right to grow. So some people have felt silenced in this culture. But, you know, that is an experience that's very painful. Maybe at times you've felt silenced or you felt perfectly comfortable or you felt difficulty where others didn't. Um, This business of complete acceptance of what's coming up is both an internal matter and it's a cultural matter. It's a worldwide matter right now. Complete acceptance of what's going on can be really tough right now. So there, there are times that we have to be very patient. So even an admired companion can make choices that we don't uh, agree with or that don't match our current understanding of how the world works. Um, people see this in their families, see people making choices that, don't, that wouldn't be right for us and we really worry that they're not right for the other pe- person. Um, so if we talk about this within ourselves, sometimes we're so conditioned in a particular habit that even when we notice that that habit isn't helpful, we still can't free ourselves from it. So at times like that, we have to extend a sense of acceptance and compassion for that until we reach an understanding that shakes it loose a little bit. Gentleness is sometimes the only way that an obstinate piece of suffering will shift. So if an admired friend, either internally or externally, does something we find unpleasant, we may have to practice forgiveness in order to make our way towards acceptance. A friend may do something we don't understand, and when we're still um, caught up in suffering, we may do something we don't fully understand or feel stuck around. So one of the many stimuli for me to enter this practice was one that was very unpleasant for me at the time. 
I have a friend who became immersed in Tibetan Buddhist practice several years before I ever came to this practice. And one weekend he came over and we were talking and he asked me if I had a spiritual practice. And so I described the blend of, you know, reverence for nature, science, you know, experiences I had had that defied explanation, a whole blend of things. And he said, that's not a spiritual practice. That, you know, you have to be part of a wisdom tradition that's been well worked out in order for a spiritual practice to be meaningful, he said. Wow, was I offended. (laughs) So, you know, for the next couple of days, I stewed and struggled with what he had said. And in fact, I trotted out and I bought a copy of The Sacred Path of the Warrior by Chogyam Trungpa, trying to find a Buddhist argument against his (laughs) narrow-mindedness. So in the process of reading the book, I learned a lot that loosened up my narrow-mindedness and contributed to my understanding of what he was saying and actually helped me enter, in part was one of the things that helped me enter this practice. So I let go of my reactivity to my friend's blunt statement. Um, And I learned something new and unfamiliar from what he said. What I learned was really transformative. And it actually changed my view of what had happened. So I, I realized it was not an offensive act for my friend to say this. You know, that's about my defensiveness, not really about my friend's bluntness. Um, So it no longer felt like forgiveness was needed. Similarly, when we're staying present with a pattern of behavior in ourselves or someone else that we don't understand or don't find pleasant, sometimes being with it or studying it over time with persistence and patience we learn something new about it and we're no longer kind of resisting it. Uh, So Gandhi said, friendship that insists upon agreement on all matters is not worth the name. (laughs) So I found that today. I'm like, that nails it. So for our practice to continue and deepen, we have to commit to befriending difficult experiences. We have to be really patient with ourselves at the frontier of our understanding, the frontier of our practice where we actually are not sure and don't know. Um, As I was sitting here tonight, it was really feeling like, this is a room I have not sat in before. I have not sat with these people before. I do not know what is going to happen next. And it was really strong. So... This idea of this area of practice for which we must be admirably companionable towards ourselves um, is interesting to me. Sharon Salzberg in The Kindness Handbook writes, instead of thinking that growth and understanding will come from doing battle with aspects of ourselves or thinking that they will come from enmity towards emotions, memories, and longings, that we actually can't keep from arising, we discover that kindness and compassion for ourselves is the best and most healing trajectory for transformation. 
the most difficult aspects of practice call on us to kind of embrace with mindfulness what's occurring moment to moment, what's unfolding right now, um, with simple attention. So without, you know, resisting, fighting, condemning, striving, pushing, without any of that. So that's a little bit like the faith we place in an admired friend. And that kind of faith is often based on experience with the friend. Over time we learn the friend is trustworthy. Over time we learn that what we're experiencing here, we can be with it. We can trust what's arising, um, even if we don't particularly find it pleasant. So this confirmed faith allows us to be with unknown experiences, new experiences at the frontier of our practice. Um, So I had plenty of experience of the friend who gave me that blunt input. And I knew he could be blunt. But I also knew he was a caring person. And that gave me enough confirmed faith to hang in there even though I dove for the Chogyam Trungpa book thinking I was going to prove him wrong, I actually could open enough to learn something from it. Um, Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, The glory of friendship is not in the outstretched hand, nor the kindly smile, nor the joy of companionship. It is in the spiritual inspiration that comes to one when he discovers that someone else believes in him and is willing to trust him. So when admired friends or Dharma teachers push us, they do or say things that push us to grow, we have to give up old ideas. We actually have to let concepts give way to what's actually happening in every moment. So we have to befriend our experience to the extent that we can start over and over and over again, which is what we're doing all the time in this practice. So in other words, we're practicing mindfulness. Um, Continuing with what the Buddha is conveying in this Upada Sutta, what about this notion of developing and pursuing the Noble Eightfold Path? He goes about, he enumerates the steps of right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So these factors on the path are interwoven just like the threads in the clothing we're we're wearing. They are dependent on one another. They really come together instead of necessarily in a neat sequence. And um, we've already touched on the right mindfulness that it takes to just be with your experience as it's coming up. Um, We've touched on the kind of right effort that's involved in perseverance in this practice. Um, The overall perspective on the practice called right view is actually the basis for the admirable qualities of companionship um, that the practice inspires us to develop. So again from Sharon Salzberg's book, as the Buddha said, just as the dawn is the forerunner and the first indication of the rising sun, so is right view the forerunner and the first indication of wholesome states like companionship, friendship, comradeship. Our view of who we are, what we're capable of, what matters in the world, 
molds our intentions, which in turn mold our actions. How we look at our lives becomes the basis for how we act and how we live and whether our choices are shaped by love and kindness. Transforming our understanding transforms our whole life. Our happiness, our degree of connectedness, our freedom. So many of us came to IMC because, or are listening on our audio dharma because we have stress or suffering and we want to address it. And from the perspective of right view, we're learning about how we contribute to our own behaviors or causes, um, what behaviors are associated with it, um, how we can uh, look at those causes, how we can bring that to an end, and this the practices of the Eightfold Path and how they help us do that. Um, so in a way, we could look at this as the ways that we're being spurred to develop admirable friendship, admirable companionship, and admirable admirable camaraderie towards ourselves and towards others. So again, Sharon Salzberg shares a little bit, a view of how this might come about from a text that dates back to around 100 BCE. There's a dialogue in which the Indo-Greek king Melinda poses questions on life to the sage Nagasena. At one point, King Melinda asks, and how does faith leap forward? Nagasena responds with an illustration of a large group of people, such as a village of people, who are on the shore of a flooding river. Their homes and their lands are all getting deluged, and they're in danger. Then one person comes along who has the courage and strength and clarity, and that person sees the way to cross to the other shore. And he forges ahead and does it. Just by seeing that one person can actually cross to safety, everybody else develops confidence in the possibility and greater confidence that they too can cross. In the example, the flooding river symbolizes our entanglements in habitual unhappiness, our tendency to be lost in the confused, conditioned mind. Crossing to the far shore, to the shore of safety, symbolizes our crossing to the place of awakening, of freedom. When we see that someone else has crossed before us or that many people have crossed before us, it can arouse a sense of inspiration. Yes, they did it, I can do it too. We turn for inspiration inevitably to models, to paradigms of humanity who convey wholeness to us, who convey another way to us, who convey peace to us. It is through those who have realized a deeper truth, bring, it is, sorry, it is as though those who have realized a deeper truth bring to life a potential that exists within us that might otherwise have lain dormant because we simply did not believe in it. It is as though there is a fire within them that can light a fire within us. There is an urgency within them to be truthful, to wake up, to not waste their lives. That urgency within them seems to light a quality or urgency within us as well. And there's a peace within them and a confidence that awakens those qualities in us. So these aspects of connection and friendship and um, companionship um, 
with others that are in our scene are part of what sets in motion the urgency to free ourselves from suffering. Um, And we can see how having friends like that or having Dharma teachers like that or people that we can listen to Dharma talks or things that we can read really do help us by being admirable. They cross the river. They help us learn to cross the flood of our own suffering. So when we do, when we start to practice, we also uh, start to come in touch with uh, transforming our clinging, our ill will, you know, our harmful behaviors towards uh, goodwill, kindness. We see, you know, our friends offer us that or our Dharma teachers offer us kindness. Of course, we want to be kind in return. They offer us compassion. We want to extend compassion to what we learn about their suffering or their struggles. Um, When we're struggling with letting go of something and somebody who's admirable gives us a little breadcrumb about how they've let go, that's helpful. That helps us find the way to let go. So we start to experience right intention by being with people like this. Those intentions also help us look more closely at our behavior towards others. What we say to ourselves inside and what we say to others um, when we speak to them. The way we act towards ourselves and the way we act towards other people. We pretty quickly start to see that harm leads to harm and kindness leads to kindness. Um, We see how our actions make us happy or unhappy and we gain the inspiration to consider our choices and act with more care. So that's right action and right speech in motion. That rolls into how we act at work, into right livelihood. Um, We start to see how interconnected we are. So here's how Martin Luther King expressed it. It really boils down to this, that all life is interrelated. We are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied into a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. We are made to live together because of the interrelated structures of reality. Did you ever stop to think that you can't leave for your job in the morning without being dependent on most of the world? You get up in the morning and go to the bathroom and reach for the sponge and that's handed to you by a Pacific Islander. You reach for a bar of soap and that's given to you at the hands of a Frenchman. Then you go into the kitchen to drink your coffee for the morning and that's poured into your cup by a South American. And maybe you want tea, that's poured into your cup by a Chinese. Or maybe you're desirous of having cocoa for breakfast and that's poured into your cup by a West African. And then... Um, you reach for your toast and that's given to you at the hands of an English-speaking farmer, not to mention the baker. And before you finish eating breakfast in the morning, you've depended on more than half the world. That is the way our universe is structured. That is its interrelated quality. We aren't going to have peace on earth until we recognize this basic fact of the interrelated structure of reality. 
So we are all sustained through every, nearly every moment of the day by admirable companionship on this planet in the sense of those who have provided and made possible our shelter, heat, fuel, food, work, laws, healthcare, collaboration at work and play, countless services we use or benefit from, the creatures, you know, uh, the plants and the animals and the insects. It's amazing. Woodrow Wilson wrote, friendship is the only cement that will ever hold the world together. So only when we can deeply appreciate the value of this admirable friendship, admirable companionship, and admirable camaraderie are we really grounded in, in what's actually going on here, what we're part of, and how we can free ourselves and each other from unnecessary stress and suffering. So I want to note that the Buddha goes on in this sutta to deeper topics that are definitely beyond the scope of a short Dharma talk. But... Um, I just want to kind of read the ending of it to you because it's very interesting the way he ends it. And through this line of reasoning, one may know how admirable friendship, admirable companionship, admirable camaraderie is actually the whole of the holy life. It is in dependence on me as an admirable friend that beings subject to birth have gained release from birth, that beings subject to aging have gained release from aging, that beings subject to death have gained release from death, that beings subject to sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair have gained release from sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair. It is through this line of reasoning that one may know how admirable friendship admirable companionship, admirable camaraderie is actually the whole of the holy life. You know, there's a lot in there that bears deep exploration. But in essence, he's inviting us to rely on his example and his teachings um, to follow the Eightfold Path to its culmination. And, you know, even if we don't, really understand what is meant at this moment by knowing the end of or release from birth, release from aging, release from death. We can all really appreciate that the Buddha is like the ultimate friend. <laughs> if you have no other friend in this world, the Buddha's admirable example and the teachings that have been come down through friendship, through companionship, through camaraderie from teacher to teacher to teacher through 2,600, 2,500 years are providing us with this opportunity for release from sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair. So that's pretty good. As to how this might be seen in befriending our own experience in this practice of mindfulness, and being admirable companions to ourselves as well as each other, 
I'd like to read you a couple more quotes. Clearly, I got way too excited about quotes on friendship, but, you know, Albert Camus offered this. Don't walk in front of me, I may not follow. Don't walk behind me, I may not lead. Walk beside me and just be my friend. Now that, if I think about my own practice, I'm, I know that there have been times when I've been walking in front of my experience, when I've been walking behind it, and then the times when it's most helpful is when I'm just being companionable towards my experience. And certainly, we like that from our friends as well. Then I'll finish with a, a piece from the Zen monk Ryokan. Good friends and excellent teachers, stick close to them. Wealth and power are fleeting dreams, but wise words perfume the world for ages. So um, my hope is that any mistakes I've made in this talk are my own and that they don't uh, have create any problems, but also that you enjoy your own good friendship, your own good companionship and camaraderie, and also that we all become exemplars of that for other people so that the practice continues to roll forward and more beings including ourselves, come to some freedom from suffering. So thank you very much for your attention tonight. And I would really like any questions or comments that you have about this, any of your own experiences of this, that's really welcome. So we have some time here to share a little bit or to comment about what do you think about this idea of being your own companion or comrade or how have you found that helpful in practice to see examples from others? Maureen will pass the mic so that we're helping the people on Audio Dharma share this. So thank you for taking the mic. I was just going to ask you if there'd be any way we could get some of those quotes because they really are beautiful, like the Martin Luther King one and the Melinda. Sure. If that would be really yeah. cool. I mean, if you just give, you. give, remind me of your email yeah. if you want to write it down. Yeah. Um, I'm happy to send those. Yeah, yeah. They're very beautiful. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Well, uh, I think, yeah, the the what you said at the end about the friendship with the Buddha being the ultimate friendship that really resonated with me. Um, you know, I've done a lot of retreats. I've sat fairly long retreats and there are certain times that's just what I did is I stared up at that golden Buddha in the front of the room. And I just thought, you know, there was somebody who saw his way through all this. And, uh, so it kept me going. Thank you. Also, I like the feeling that uh, even in silence, we're never really alone. I mean, we're sitting in this tradition where millions of people have contributed, and so we have all those friends.
And I also welcome, you know, if you'd like to come up afterwards and talk with me privately. Sometimes people don't really feel like speaking into the room. So thank you so much. And may this practice bring you admirable friendship. Good night.